chapter 3. Paul is an interesting figure. He was a, as Jewish a guy there ever was. He was so zealous for the Jewish cause when they hated Christ, he decided he would join that cause and persecute Christians, killing some, putting others in prison, seizing their goods. He was so zealous for the law. It's interesting, when he was converted then, he thought no less of the law, but realized the law had only led him to a life of frustration. The law demanded perfection, but gave no power to pull that off. It told you how holy God was, and we instantly realized how unholy we are, and it set a standard of perfection because the perfect and holy God had given the law. Paul, I believe, walked in frustration, trying hard his whole life to be a zealous Pharisee. He was admitted at a very young age, apparently, as a voting member of the Sanhedrin, had, was one of only 5,000 men or so in all of uh, Judah that was a Pharisee, a, a guy who typically could quote the first five books of the Bible from memory. That's a good Jew who worked hard to be a good Jew. But when he became a Christian, he realized all of that law simply led to frustration and indeed condemnation. I couldn't keep the law. In fact, when he was saved, he was so convicted of his sins, he had overseen the murder of people. He had stood there at the stoning of Stephen, holding the people's cloaks while they stoned an innocent man to death. And I'll believe, I believe with all of my heart that God caused his whole life to pass before his eyes, and he realized what a wretch he was. And that point led him to faith in Christ Jesus. He turned his life over to the one who knocked him off his high horse on the road to Damascus, and he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I guess we all did before we came to faith in Christ. We made fun of Christians, mocked their beliefs. Perhaps you remember those, those pagan days. But what Paul became was an apostle, a pioneer, if you will, uh, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Uh, he was always blazing new trails, and so as he just went on these three, mag possibly four, magnificent journeys of his, his desire was simply, now that I'm freed from the law, I just want to tell people about Jesus. I just want to tell people about Jesus. Now, there's two elements that he came up against that, that made it a bit of a struggle at times. Number one, he was up against popular Jewish thought that said, no, 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 you can't be godly without keeping the law. By trying to keep the law is the only way you're ever going to get into heaven. And Paul would make the argument to them, the law served to condemn us. It set a high and holy standard no one could meet. Thus, it condemned us all as having failed to keep that law. But secondly, he talked to Gentiles as well that were pagan worshipers that had no idea of who God was or the God of the Old Testament. They had no idea. So simultaneously, Paul had to minister to two very different audiences. And as if that weren't enough, as soon as he would establish a handful of believers and move on to the next town, some people called Judaizers, Jewish so-called believers, would come in behind Paul and try to subvert the gospel that he had taught them. He was teaching them, Jesus Christ is enough. We've been singing songs all this morning about the cross. We do not worship the cross. 
We worship the one who hung on the cross to pay the penalty our sins deserve. We don't worship wooden beams. That's not what the cross is about. But it recalls to us the price that God was willing to let his own son pay to bring us into his kingdom. It wasn't by keeping the law. If we could have gotten into heaven by trying hard enough to be good people, then Christ died for nothing. And that's the argument that Paul has made in these first two chapters. First of all, he had to always, always, always tell them again, I'm an apostle called by the will of God. So he was always trying to rehash his credentials as a legitimate apostle of Jesus Christ. He saw the risen Lord. He met him on the Damascus Road. But these people would always come in on, uh, behind his ministry. Oh, he's not a real pastor. He's not a real apostle. He's not a fisherman. He's not one of the 12. He wasn't one of the saved tax collectors or zealots. It's kind of a Johnny come lately inventing his own gospel, if you will, his own way to get to heaven. But Paul has realized, Jesus has set me free. So he is going to, in this argument, compare this whole idea of works versus faith in Christ Jesus In one sense, Christians believe that we are saved by grace, but there is this legalistic tendency of Judaistic thought to come in on heels. I know I'm saved by grace, but i got to really work hard to be a good Christian. Jesus is enough, but... Well, that's exactly what the Judaizers are saying. Who are the Judaizers today? I think demons from from hell itself sitting on your shoulder whispering, You're not trying hard enough. I won't ask for a show of hands. You ever felt like a failure as a Christian? Where does that voice of condemnation come from? It doesn't come from the one who hung on the cross. It comes from the pit of hell, condemning us that, in fact, we are not worthy. God's standard was perfection and nobody has kept it. So we acknowledge instantly we are worthy. But instead of allowing Satan to condemn us, what it should do is prompt tears of gratitude of saying, thank you, Lord Jesus, I'm saved by grace. I'm saved by my faith in what you did on that cross. We don't worship the cross. We worship the one who hung on the cross because that's what our sins demanded. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Does that include you? Then you need to be saved by grace. And his name is Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's what the cross to us represents. It is Jesus. But these Judaizers would come in on Paul's heel. He, for years and years, the poor guy had to deal with this constantly, as battling his critics and those that would persecute him and he was in jail, imprisoned, mocked, and ridiculed. The poor guy. So he spends these first two chapters authenticating God's call upon his life. I'm really a Christian. I'm saved by grace. Jesus met me on the Damascus Road. I've seen the living Lord. And as if that weren't enough, when I went to Jerusalem and met with Peter, and I saw Peter, the great apostle, doing something that was wrong, withdrawing himself from Gentile fellowship when Jews were around, He said, I called out his sin publicly. And you know what? Peter received it. Godly people can receive correction. I don't know how you receive correction. Most people hate it because your flesh hates it. 
Your flesh hates to admit it's wrong, doesn't it? Doesn't like that being brought up, especially not publicly. But Peter accepted Paul's rebuke. He knew that he was wrong, and he accepted that. So what Paul says is, I'm an apostle. I even rebuked one of the original 12, and it was well-received. James is a fellow brother of mine, the head of of the church in Jerusalem, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm legit. I even been to seminary. I've been to rabbinic school. I've studied under the rabbis. I, I got all of that. But he says his greatest attribute as an apostle was the fact that Jesus Christ sat on the throne of his heart. It wasn't what he'd accomplished. It wasn't his age or his education or things that he'd once counted to his own credit. He said, I'm here by the will of God. I'm called by the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm living right now a life crucified. So what chapter 3 pulls out of is, if you could back up just a little bit to the previous paragraph, verse 20. This is who I am. This is who you are if you're a Christian this morning. This is your identity, and it has nothing to do with your performance as a Christian because you and I still fall short. But this is your real identity. It's not a failure as a Christian. It's not one who tried hard enough and came up short. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He took my place. If the wages of sin is death, I should have hung on the cross. He took my place. I do not set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could be gained through the law by trying hard enough, by keeping all of those Jewish rules and regulations, then Christ died for nothing. That is the truth of the gospel. Jesus died to set us free. I'm not saved by my performance because I still come up short. I'm saved by faith. I'm saved. I'm kept by His grace. This is really the introduction to the doctrinal portion of of the letter to these half dozen or so Galatian churches. But it answers two important questions. How are you saved? And how are you made holy? It's God's intention to make you more like His Son with every passing day. Jesus was holy. He was set apart for God's purposes. So here's the two questions you have to answer for yourself this morning. How are you saved? Is it by trying hard enough to be a good Christian? Or are you saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and what He accomplished 2,000 years ago and keeps washing you in every moment of every day? How am I sanctified? If I wasn't saved by trying hard enough, I'm not made holy by trying hard enough either. And some of you guys are trying to wear yourselves out, trying to be the perfect Christian. And it always leads to discouragement. You cannot perfect yourself any more than you could keep the perfect law that condemned you. How then can I become conformed to the image of Christ? Put yourself in His presence as often as you can. It's His job to make you holy. It's your job to get close. 
You do that through the reading of his word, church attendance, praise and worship, a thousand other ways in which you bow the knee on a moment-to-moment basis. Lord, take care of this situation. Lord, I'm looking for this job. Would you show me? Should I go left? Should I go right? How, how should I approach this matter or that? What would you have me do? Are you saved by faith in Christ alone, or is it Christ plus whatever you can add? Takes a burden off your shoulders, doesn't it? When Jesus said, be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect, can I tell you, he meant that? But we should quickly realize, I can't do that. His demands is perfection, but that's only met in Christ Jesus. He is my perfection. What can I add to that? Nothing. What can I do in response to that out of sheer gratitude? Offer myself to Him a living sacrifice daily. This is our act of worship. It says in chapter 3, verse 1, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Remember on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. He didn't say, I've done my part, now you do your part. He didn't say that. He said, I've done it for you. Now the question is, will you put all of your faith, trust, hope, and confidence in me? How are you saved? Verse 2, I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, by observing the law, by trying hard enough, or simply by believing the gospel that you heard? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? What's the goal? Becoming Christ-like. That's what the word sanctification means. Increasingly holy, better each day. How do, you, how do you accomplish that? Not by trying harder. It's not a matter of trying, but dying. Dying to sin, dying to self, dying to the world, dying to the idols of technology and fashion and sports and a thousand other idols that we have out there today. Did you know it is possible to live a life in Christ without a cell phone? Did you know that you won't die if you don't have access to social media? Did you know that? Most people say, sure, I know that. I just don't practice that. Are we voluntarily making ourselves slaves to idols of the world? And we, because of that, are less devoted to the Lord daily? I mean, I'm hearing, I just heard last night that the average teenager in America spends nine hours a day on social media. I don't know how much time you spend. I don't say this by way of condemnation. But what kind of Christian would you be if you read and prayed and shared your faith nine hours a day? Well, I just don't have time, Pastor Jim. Turn the cell phone off. There's a novel thought. Oh, I couldn't. I, I live for how many likes I get and dislikes, really. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't? Jesus didn't give a rip what anyone thought of him. He lived for the will of the Father. So should you and I. I don't care who likes me, who doesn't like me. I don't care if I'm popular or unpopular. I don't care if I'm on TV or radio. I'm not trying to build my kingdom or establish my legacy. I, he's got his own legacy, and he's all I need. 
I don't need to do anything for me. I don't want to be remembered for anything except for two things, my love of God and my love of hot dogs. If it says that on my tombstone, I'll die a happy camper. I'm fine. But I want to get my priorities straight. I want to keep them straight. I'm not perfected in my faith by being trying hard enough to be a good Christian. Some of you have killed yourself over these years and chalked yourself up to be a monumental favorite. Oh, Pastor, I've heard it. Pastor Jim, I've tried so hard to be a good Christian. I've tried so hard to avoid this addiction or that. I've tried <laughs> to put my cell phone down, and I just can't. I got the demon of cell phone in me, and I, you know, I need an exorcism. You cannot become more holy by trying harder. Put yourself in the presence of God. Making you holy is His job. You putting yourself in His presence is your job. Do not ignore the Lord. Don't forsake the God who allowed His Son to die to purchase your salvation. Give Him His due. Give Him His time. Find time for praise and worship and prayer and the study of His Word and the sharing of your faith. Find time. Well, where do I get it? Turn off your cell phone. Turn off your TV. Turn off your computer. And you'll find that you still have the same 24 hours a day that Jesus had. And He had time to do the perfect will of the Father. Have you ever wondered why we don't see the signs, wonders, and miracles we read about in the first century? I'll tell you. They didn't have TV. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have the endless distractions and preoccupations that we do today. So they spent more time in what? Reading and prayer and fellowship and worship, the breaking of bread. The important stuff to the early church, we just don't have time for anymore because we've given ourselves over to false gods. Oh, we still try really hard to be a good Christian, but we know in our heart of hearts, I've failed. I can't, I can't get a handle on this sin in my life. Why? No power. I can't get a handle on this addiction over here. Why? You have no power. If you're not in the presence, you have no power. This is not rocket science, but I bring it to your attention not because you don't know it, but because you don't do it. And you know that. The only difference between a lukewarm Laodicean Christian in the last days and a spirit-filled on fire Christian in the last days is what you do with your time. Is it Jesus? You got the praise and worship music going on in your home, in your car, in the workplace, if possible? I mean, do you carve out some time for fellowship with Christians and prayer? Do you, do you get in each other's lives? Do, if iron sharpens iron, do you talk about the Lord when you get together? Or do you sit out in the foyer talking about the coffee and, and how hot this last week has been? Nobody cares. That's what I hate about sitting out in the foyer. Now, if you've got a medical need, I understand that. If you're a doctor on call and you've you got a beeper or whatever, I understand that. That's fine. But most of the time, people sit out in the foyer to gab, and it's never about the Lord. I come in from my office into the sanctuary, and I overhear the gab all the time. And you know what? In the last five years, I haven't heard a conversation about Jesus yet. Do you think something's wrong with that? I do that you come to church but don't want to talk about the Lord? Then why did you come to church? If iron sharpens iron, then the only sharpening tool we got is the Word of God. 
Why don't we love on each other? Why don't we pray for each other? Who cares about the weather or sports or what you did last week at work? Nobody cares. None of that is important in the eternal scheme of things. Paul's trying to bring these people that are killing themselves, trying hard enough to be legalistically good Christians. And he's trying to tell them, can you just come back to Jesus? You, you came originally, can you just stay there? Can you act like you love them again? Because you don't act like you do. You come to church, but you don't talk about them. In the last day's church at Laodicea, it has Jesus knocking on the door of the church to come in. What? They're having church service and Jesus isn't even invited? No, but they got a great concert going on. They got smoke pots and lasers and rising platforms and it's a show. Music's loud enough to fracture eardrums. Why? Because that's what the world does in its pagan concerts. We have to emulate that. We have to act like the world if we're going to draw the world right. Is that what Jesus did? I don't want Jesus ever knocking on the doors of the church to come in. Every morning I pray, Lord, spiritually throw open every door, peel back the roof, cause your face to shine upon your people in blessing. I want us to see Jesus when we come together. When we come in his house, I want us to talk about Jesus. I don't want it to be mechanical or contrived. God forbid it ever become legalistic or weird or some kind of I know scripture better than you do kind of a contest. But what I want to see in the church is humility and grace and love and peace and joy and the fruit of the Holy Spirit kind of stuff. I want to see servants raised up. I want to see people walking in the, in the fear of the Lord and the love of Jesus Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to see you going out there in the world being a world changer. I want Jesus on your lips Monday through Saturday. In here in the church, that's one thing. But are you taking Jesus with you? I mean, can I tell you, the, the place you need, the place you work, they need Jesus. Can I tell you, we live in a military community. The Army needs Jesus. The Air Force needs Jesus. The Space Force, they need Jesus. And if you don't open your mouth and use the name, who is? Why do you think God has placed you where he has placed you? It's not by accident. You are, like Paul, an emissary, an ambassador of his grace. You carry Jesus with you. The Holy Spirit is who causes you to speak when your flesh says, be quiet. It's the Holy Spirit who causes you to do miraculous things. You want to see the miracles they saw in the first century? Then let's, as a church, bring ourselves into his presence as regularly as we can. And in his presence, the power is renewed. The power that causes sin to simply fall away from you. It's not obsessing with your sin that will make you more holy. It's not trying harder that will make you holy. It's a matter of coming before his presence and dying to the sins of this world and the weakness of the flesh. You will never get a handle on your addictions by trying harder. Never. That's self-effort. That's what the Jews were doing. Let's just try harder to be good Christians. You have condemned yourself to failure already. Here's where it starts. Here's where victory starts. On your knees, in humility, in repentance, and simply asking for help. James says, you have not because you ask not. 
Ask God for strength because you don't have it. And you're not going to accomplish victory in your life over any besetting sin by simply trying harder. That's not the way those things are dealt with. It is not by might nor by power, Zechariah 4, 6 says, but by my spirit, says the Lord. We can't have church without the Holy Spirit. If you're afraid of Pentecostalism, if you have had some dreadful experience in some hyper-charismatic church, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. You need the Holy Spirit. If we're going to live a supernatural life, it's because we're in touch with a supernatural God, not because we're trying harder or I took some 12-step program. I just got a call last week. Some guy called and said, hey, I tried, I went through this 12-step program. Didn't work. Duh. Wrong power source, especially when you go to a group that no longer teaches Jesus Christ and submission to him. They just put some ambiguous term in there, higher power. What does that mean to the average fool? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So there's no power. They used to mention Jesus Christ. Read about the background of AA. Or Narcotics Anonymous. It was Jesus Christ. And there, as soon as you take him out of the equation, there's no power. There's no power. The law did not have Jesus in it. It anticipated the coming of the Messiah, but there was such jealousy and rivalry in the religious community that when he did came, they crucified him. They were trying hard to be good Jews, and Jesus was getting in the way. Pastor Jim, I'm a good Christian. Really? Yep, I try as hard as I can. I don't drink, cuss, chew, or date girls that do. Well, that makes you holy, I'm sure. It's legalism. I'm holy by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ because I realize that apart from Him, I'm not righteous. I have no holiness. It makes me completely dependent upon Him. That's when victory begins. Whatever issue you're struggling with today, here's, I'm going to tell you something Satan doesn't want you to know. The answer is Jesus. You on your face before Jesus. No pride, no arrogance, no trying harder, just dying, dying to sin, dying to self, dying to self. The law was a taskmaster, man. It put a 1,500-pound load of bricks on everybody's back, and they were going, oh, I can't do this. No, of course you can't, because it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. We've forgotten that. We've forgotten that. Somehow or another, we've learned to do the devil's dance and we court the world and we flirt and we adopt its strategies. And if it's important to the world, it's important to me now. Ooh, I've got to wear this name brand or I only wear that. Or I only listen to this. What? You have an Android and not an Apple? Do you remember there was a time where we thought Apple was a fruit? Remember that? That was a long time ago. Uh, today, uh, I wish it was fruit again. I wish it, there's a part of me that wishes for simpler times. You know, from verse 2 on, Paul will mention the Holy Spirit 16 times. 
16 times. Why? Because he's repeating himself and he's got a minor amount of dementia because he's approaching my age? No, it's because people have forgotten that. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. How do I get in touch with his Holy Spirit? On your knees, in humility, repentance, and, and ask. Jesus said, ask and seek and knock, it'll be given you. And he was speaking of the Holy Spirit. At the moment of our conversion, the Holy Spirit comes to personally indwell each one of us. And he is the only power source available to defeat sin. You can't do it. I've tried. I can remember times in my past as a young man struggling with sin, and I was trying harder and trying harder and trying harder not to commit this sin or that sin. I was constantly pulled and constantly tempted, and I was trying as hard as I could. I tried so hard, it felt like if I try any harder, I'll pass out. And I'm still not getting victory. Have you ever heard or been a Christian that said, I can't do this? Being a Christian is too hard. Have you ever thought that to yourself? That's Satan wanting you to give up. He's wanting you to think that you have something to do with the process, that you have to try harder to be a good Christian. That's legalism. It'll kill you. A surrendered Christian is a Christian who is on his face before the Lord in, in total humility every, every moment of every day, asking for that power. Lord, I, I can't defeat this sin in my life. I can't, I, I can do nothing apart from you. Isn't that what Jesus said in John's gospel? Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We, we don't believe that, so we try harder and then wind up frustrated because I can't get a handle on my sin. I can't change myself. I can't even dump my old bad habits. Why? No power. So we get in touch with that supernatural source of power. Only then can we live a life that's pleasing to God. What does that look like? Here's what it looks like. It looks like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's what a spirit-filled Christian looks like. He looks like that in the workplace, at home, and at church. Hmm. Just because we place our belief, our faith, our, our trust in what Jesus did for us. Can I tell you, the Spirit-led life is critical if we're going to be successful as Christians living in a sinful, fallen world, trying hard to say no to temptation. There's no victory apart from Him. The problem is, in my flesh dwells no good thing. Paul said that. What do you suspect dwells in your flesh? No good thing. So sell, the flesh can't defeat the flesh. You can never get a handle on your issues by trying harder apart from the Lord. You are destined for defeat by your own hand. The answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. Verse 2 brings up the point as well. You need to understand that faith and believing are simply two forms of exactly the same word in the Greek language. Faith, pistis, means to place all of my faith, trust, hope, and confidence in Him. I have faith in Him. Believing is simply foot, 
faith put into practice as a verb. Same word, same exact word, except that one has the noun ending, one has the verb ending. But if you say, well, I want to believe in Jesus, but I don't know how, you place all of your faith, trust, hope, and confidence in Him. And then you continue doing that for the rest of your life. That's all faith and believing are. They're the same thing in the original language. And believing is going to occur 20 times in the remainder of this epistle all by itself. 20 times. We come to God on the basis of what He has done, not on the basis of what we have done. The door is always open to Him. When we humble ourselves, confess our sins, He cleanses and washes us from all iniquity, Scripture says. Well, moving right along, blazing through verse 2. Then verse 3, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit... Are you now trying to attain your goal of perfection, of sanctification, of being Christ-like? Are you trying to do it by self-effort? You came in simplicity and humility. You continue to live out your life exactly the same way. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? No. Have you suffered so much for nothing? Verse 4, if it was really for nothing, does God give you His Spirit and work miracles among you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard? I believe, Lord. I believe I have faith, trust, hope, and confidence in you. I know that you're the Messiah. I know that you're the Son of God. You proved it with your resurrection, and 500 eyewitnesses saw you after you rose from the dead. How can I deny history? It, to me, is not a matter of faith. It's a matter of, am I intelligent enough to believe the facts of history? I, I look at the proof. It's overwhelming. Jesus lived. He died. He bar was buried and rose again. I mean, those are the facts. They're not open to interpretation. It's not open to opinion. Either it's fact. It happened or it didn't. Look in any encyclopedia in the world today. Look up Jesus Christ. He rose from the dead. It doesn't say, well, those Christians believe he rose from the dead. It treats it as historical fact. I can't add anything to what Jesus has already done. The moment I got saved, he gave me his Holy Spirit. That's the resource I need. But I have a responsibility, as Paul told Timothy later in his life, to fan into full flame the embers of the Holy Spirit within. I was given the Holy Spirit... The moment I got saved. That happened also for the disciples. Jesus breathed upon them, in John's gospel says, and said, receive the Holy Spirit. No doubt in my mind they did. Then what happened later on at Pentecost, where it says the Holy Spirit came upon them in power. That's called, a, that's a different experience. You can call it the AP experience or the Holy Spirit coming upon you or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. All of those are synonymous terms in Acts chapter 1 and, and chapter 2. They, they don't parse uh, or argue about that terminology from those passages. It's, they are one and the same thing. I got saved. I got given the Holy Spirit. I got empowered when the Holy Spirit comes upon me in power. Sometimes you've got the Holy Spirit, but sometimes you just need more. When I was on the Colorado Springs Fire Department, let me give you an example. Sometimes we'd pull out at a, at, a, at a little car fire beside the highway or something, and we'd pull off a little three-quarter inch diameter hose called a booster hose that had 200 pounds of pressure behind it, but you could, you could kill any car fire with it in an instant. 
Sometimes you needed more. Sometimes we moved up the next largest hose we had was an inch and a half. The inch and a half banks had 250 feet of hose on either side of the, the, the main hose bed in, in the back. And, and we'd pull those off, it, and that would put out an amazing amount of, uh, of power. You could put it on a fan nozzle and go into a house that's fully involved and just swirl the thing around, and without leaving a drop of water on the floor, all the flames were extinguished. They teach you stuff like that at the fire academy. It's kind of cool. It's important because I don't want to do the cleanup. <laughs> and firemen have to do the cleanup afterwards. So you learn quickly how to, how to knock down the fire with the least amount of, of effort. But you have to go into the seat of the fire first. And that takes guts. When everybody else is running out, you're running in. Okay, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But sometimes you need more. We went to the Chrissy Fowler Lumber Yard fire, and they stuck me on the end of a 90-foot aerial ladder, manning the, the Black Widow nozzle at the top of there, putting out 500 gallons per minute uh, into that fire. And that fire was burning so hot and so strong, I watched my stream, straight stream, come right out of that Black Widow nozzle, and it evaporated before it ever hit the fire. That's a hot fire. I felt like a marshmallow on the end of a stick. Just being rotated over, my, my turnout gear was smoking. I had to hose myself down just to keep my, my coat from burning. My, my helmet started melting around my ears. That was a hot fire. And so they brought in something to put out 1,500 gallons per minute. Puny, my little puny 500-gallon per minute Black Widow nozzle, it wasn't doing me no good, so they brought in the big guns. Holy Spirit is much like that. You got the Holy Spirit when you first got saved, but sometimes a crisis will come up in your life, and you need more. Ask. Ask. Anytime on the radio, every fireman had this ability. I could get on the radio when we were at the scene of a fire and say, Dispatch, I need another aerial ladder and another pumper out here. Send them now. And they'd do it. But they wouldn't do anything unless I asked. They didn't know. You have to ask. God does know, but he still wants you to ask. We eventually got out every fire that we, we went to fight. Can I tell you, the Holy Spirit of God will ignite a fire in your heart, a fire of passion, a fire of zeal, a fire of surrender to him if you will just let him. Put yourself in that place where you're in God's Word. You're in prayer. You got the praise and worship going on. You're in fellowship. Spend as much time in the Word of God as you do any other activity in life, and you will do well as a Christian. You won't go anywhere by trying harder. That's doomed to failure because that's self-effort. That says, don't need your help, God. I'm just going to try harder. I can get a handle on this addiction. No, you can't. I can get a handle on this sin in my life. No, you can't. Well, I'm just going to try harder. Try less, die more. Die to sin, die to self. Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. I can add nothing to that. So Jesus is the answer. Boy, you want to just write this down, please, in Jesus' name. There is no other answer for what you face than Jesus Christ and His Holy Spirit. There is no other answer. Any other tree you're barking up, wrong tree. Wrong tree. I want to avoid frustration in your life. 
I want you to avoid doubt and fear and despair and feeling like a failure. Please get on board with this thing. You have no other answer but Jesus. There is no counselor that gets you through this mess. No amount of money will fix you. Apart from me, you can do nothing. He brings up then to these Judaizers even, verse 6, consider Abraham. He believed God. He believed God. That's it. Faith. He exercised his faith in God and God's promises. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe, those who exercise their faith, are children of Abraham. The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles, us non-Jews, by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you, through his descendants. Jesus comes from the line of Abraham. He is the deliverer. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Mentioned so many times in Scripture as an exemplary man of faith in God and His promises. Verse 10, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Wow, that quotes a scary portion of Scripture in Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. The standard was perfection. And what it says in a nutshell is what's echoed for us in, in James chapter 2 and verse 10. Whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles in just one point is guilty of breaking it all. That's why the law condemns us. We all fall short. We all did. We all do. That's why we need to walk by faith, accepting the grace that's offered to us freely in Christ Jesus. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. From the womb to the tomb, the Jew who thought the law could save him had to keep every bit of it, every dot, every tittle. You could never do anything wrong. Well, everybody has fallen short. David said in the Psalms, nobody does what's right all the time. Nobody. Solomon said, I've looked across the whole of the earth and I, I found nothing. Everyone sins. Everyone falls short. So Paul points out in verse 11, clearly no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith, not the law. The purpose of the law was not to make people holy. The purpose of the law was to convict us of sin and to show us something about a holy and perfect God whose standard I couldn't meet. So the responsible Jew would fall on his face and say, after I've slaughtered all of my sheep and goats and offered up everything I have as a sacrifice, I still sin. Who covers my sins then? You're saved by grace. You're saved by grace. That's the one lesson the Jews failed to understand throughout the, nearly the whole of the Old Testament. You're not saved by keeping the law. You're not saved by trying hard enough to keep the law or whatever expectations that you've laid upon yourself. You're saved by surrender to God, faith in His promises, believing that Jesus is sufficient. And I can add nothing to that. He is my sufficiency. Verse 12, the law is not based on faith, 
On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Conversely, the man who doesn't do those things will die by them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. In other words, he paid the penalty not for any sin he committed, but for ours. For our sins. Verse 14, he redeemed us in order that the blessing, say blessing. That's what God wants to do. He wants to bless you. He needs you to do it his way, not yours. He doesn't need you trying harder. He needs you dying more to sin and self and the world and technology and acting like he's important enough to devote some time to him. We've got time for TV. Don't have time for the, re- for the Word. We've got time for the sports. But don't have time for God. We've got time for investing hours on the Internet. Don't have time for God. Maybe we need to analyze our priorities and get back to God. Maybe the difference between a Laodicean lukewarm church and a spirit-filled on fire Christian for the Lord these last days all depends on what you do with what you've heard this morning. Personally, this message isn't for the person sitting next to you. It's not for your husband. It's not for your spouse. It's not for your wife. This is for you. Only you can change what you do. Nobody can do that for you. Wives have often been under the mistaken impression they can nag their husbands into the kingdom of God. They cannot. They cannot. Men will find time to mow the lawn, to fix the house, to paint the shed, and they make excuses why I didn't have time to worship God or open up the Bible today. Men hide behind their jobs and women hide behind their busyness and their kids. No excuses. No excuses. It is your choice to choose life or death this morning. To choose lukewarm and hating everything there is in this world or being spirit-filled and on fire and letting God bless you. Your choice. But what I never want to hear is that you don't have time. You have exactly the same 24 hours a day that Jesus had. we got plenty enough time for God. Peter, in 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5, says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Kept in heaven for you. It's not on earth. It's not on earth. It's kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. The coming of Jesus Christ is imminent. It's imminent. The signs of the times are all around us. The next thing is the rapture of the church and somebody, fool out there is going to push the nuclear weapon button and the whole world's going to go up in smoke. I want to be ready for that day. The law just showed me how inadequate I am and my desperate need of God's grace. It was never intended or given to make men righteous. It can't. 
Only my faith in Jesus will get me, get me there. The law made us slaves to self-effort. We, oh, we try harder, we try harder, we try harder. I just want to lift the burden off your shoulders today. Give it to God. It's not your burden to bear. Jesus already did. He already did. He's just waiting for you to surrender. Stop making excuses and just say, Lord, here am I. This is impossible with me. I've, I've tried. I can't gain victory. I can't make me better. I can't fix me. Do you know why most people choose a psychology major in college? Number one, it's an easy degree. And number two, they're looking to fix themselves because they're so screwed up. That's why most people t want a psych major. Why am I such a hot mess? Can I tell you, the popular model of psychology changes on average every 20 years. They don't have the answers. You're barking up the wrong tree. What you need is Jesus. What you need is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. What you need is simple surrender in humility before Him. Say, Lord, I'm a hot mess, but you can fix me up. Lord, I'm married to a hot mess. Would you fix them up? My kids are a hot mess because we made them hot mess because we're hot messes. Would you fix them? Tell your kids about Jesus. He's the answer. He's all we need. It's by faith that these things are appropriated. And that's how he ends up there in verse 14. God redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to us Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith, say by faith, that's the secret. It's not by trying hard. We might receive the promise of the Holy Spirit. You need victory. You need victory. You want victory desperately if you're a child of God, but you have not experienced victory. And you wonder what the problem is. Jesus said at one point in his ministry, with man this is impossible, with God all things are possible. I'd like the praise band to come up, and we're going to end on that note of victory as you make the choice to surrender afresh or not this morning. And ask for the baptism of the, and the filling of His Holy Spirit or not. And then from this moment forward, prioritize God, the reading of His Word and prayer and worship. Make that the priority of your life and you're going to turn your life around. More accurately, He is going to turn your life around. Let's stand together and close in prayer, shall we? I believe with all of my heart that all things are possible with you, the living God. We want to experience victory. We want, Lord, to walk in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control and kindness. We need you, Lord. And apart from you, there is, there's just nothing. Apart from you, I can do nothing. So, Lord Jesus, in this song of surrender, as we sing about how the impossible things for us are possible with you, would, would you just meet us right where we're at right now? Forgive us our sins as we humble ourselves before you, as we confess our lack of victory over these areas of our lives that we struggle with. Lord, we look to you. We believe that you are sufficient. When you said, Jesus, it is finished. We believe in you. We have every resource we need. Every resource in the universe is ours. It is at our disposal. If we will just seek you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We love you, Lord. Bless us. Cause your face to shine upon us, Lord. Things that are impossible for us are more than possible with you. Let's sing that song together. Impossible.